Thank you, worship team. So good just to come and clean the pipes out, isn't it? Just, just forget what's going on, forget the rain outside, forget the heat, forget whatever's going on, and say, I'm here to praise the Lord. And I hope that you sense the Lord's presence this morning. So this morning we're taking a little bit of a detour. We've been, we've been uh, talking about, uh, I, I titled our sermon series for the summer, Shoreline Lessons. We're talking about Jesus' ministry around the Sea of Galilee, and we're taking different scenarios from that um, as, we, as we go through Scripture and go through the Gospels, and uh, I look forward to com- continuing that next week. Today, I'd like, to, I'd like to take a little bit of a detour, and I'd like, to, I'd like to talk about the 4th of July, and I'd like to talk about who we are as a nation, who we are as believers in the midst of it. Um, and as I think about as I think about the Christian voice, as our voices as, as uh, witnesses for Christ in our culture, whether it's with our neighbor, whether it's one-on-one or at the workplace, or if it's, it's in the public arena, sometimes we feel like our voice is, is not heard, and, and the antagonists are, are quite vocal these days, aren't they? And it's quite easy to kind of try to push us in the corner, and it's, try, it's easy for us to feel like, man, I better just sit down and be quiet. So, I would like us, I'd like us this morning to focus a, a little bit on our heritage as a nation. And you've already gotten a taste of it with the video this morning. I want us to pray, and uh, if, if time allows, no, not if time allows, we're going to have a little concert of prayer at the end of, the, at the end of our time today for our nation, for ourselves, for the church. For God to bless our nation. I also have a, a, a secret agenda. I'll just let you know what it is today. I want you to know that you're not crazy. I want you to know you're not crazy. Now, what's that? What about me? Well, that's another subject, I guess. I want you to know that you're not crazy on this, on this subject of being a Christian in today's culture. I want you to know that you're not crazy for speaking, speaking into the heritage of our United States and, and letting people know that, yes, indeed, we have been founded on biblical Christian values. We need not be ashamed of it. We need not hide it. And um, I, I, I don't want you to think, or me to think, that we need to hide in a corner our heritage speaks volumes about, about the foundations, the biblical foundations, the Christian foundations of our nation. So to do that today, we are going, we're, 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 uh, we're going to do a little bit of historical theology, I guess, I, if I'm using that term properly. We're, we're going to look at our, our history as a nation. So it's a, it's, we're not doing a Bible study per se today. We're, we're looking at historical evidence. Okay, so hold on to your socks. I have about 160 slides with quotes on them, and uh, we're we're going to work through it. And I, I hope, uh, and you know, I figured as long as it's raining, you're not going anywhere anyway. So, and they said it's going to rain until noon or one o'clock. So, <laughs> okay, nervous laughter around the room. All right, let me start with this. On June 26, 1876, 
the president was Ulysses S. Grant, and he issued a proclamation for the for the for a national day of public thanksgiving to coincide with the hundredth anniversary of the United States, Fourth of July, 1876. And he said this in his proclamation to the nation. The centennial anniversary of the day on which the people of the United States declared their right to a separate and equal station among the powers of the earth seems to demand an exceptional observance. The founders of the government, at its birth and in its feebleness, invoked the blessings and the, and the protection of a divine providence. And the 13 colonies and the three millions of people have expanded into a nation of strength and numbers, commanding the position which then was asserted and for which fervent prayers were then offered. Okay, he's going back a hundred years. It was all based on prayer. He goes on, it seems fitting that on the occurrence of the hundredth anniversary of our existence as a nation, a grateful acknowledgement should be made to Almighty God for the protection and the bounties which he has vouchsafed to our beloved country. It seemed quite natural to him that we on the 4th of July should turn and give thanks to God. He goes on, I therefore invite the good people of the United States on the approaching 4th day of July, in addition to the usual observances with which they are accustomed to greet the return of the day. Further, in such manner and at such time as in their respective localities and religious associations may be most convenient, to mark its recurrence by some public religious and devout thanksgiving to Almighty God for the blessings which have been bestowed upon us as a nation during the century of our existence, and humbly to invoke a continuance of his favor and of his protection. Did you hear that? Go ahead, have your picnics. Go ahead, play softball. Go ahead, take the boat out. Go ahead, go camping. Do all of those things. Did you hear him say that? He said it in there, not in those words. He said it. Go ahead, do your usual things. But in the process of it, I want you to take time. I want you to pull back, and I want you to have a religious observance. I want you to go to church. I want you to gather together, and I want you to praise the Lord for his blessings on our nation over the last hundred years. Have you heard that for our proclamation this year? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. President Grant's proclamation that the centennial of our nation be celebrated by a day of public religious and devout thanksgiving to Almighty God is a lost episode in American history. So as we come to the 4th of July holiday, it's my hope, it's my prayer, it's my assumption that we are, of all people, enthusiastic to celebrate the blessing that God has granted to us, to our nation. We celebrate a rich heritage, and yes, a godly calling. I will say that. We celebrate a godly calling as a people and a nation. So it's right to celebrate this week. As President Grant declared in 1876, a public, religious, and devout thanksgiving to Almighty God is highly appropriate for July 4th. But, and you know me, I've always got the other side of the coin. If we are attentive, attentive to the news and to the views of the day, we likely have mixed emotions about being too patriotic on this day. If we listen to the loudest voices of the day, you would think our nation is not worthy of respect, let alone thanksgiving to the Lord. It seems that it's much more acceptable today to belittle, to shame, and to despise our nation than it is to lift it up. The focus is not only on the mistakes and the weaknesses of our country, 
but also on newly conceived injustices and bigotries that seem to, ha- seem to have been overlaid over our flag. Are you with me so far? We seem to have come a long ways from the humble attitude of dependence and thanksgiving to God that President Grant affirmed in his declaration in 1876. So as we come to the celebration of the 4th of July this week and this year, I'd like to spend some time focusing on our nation. Specifically, I'd like us to consider why, who we are as a nation and why we as followers of Christ, we need to be fervently praying, standing the gap for her. So the first thing I'd like to do, and probably the largest, the bulk of what we're doing this morning is remembering our heritage. Remember our heritage. If we are going to pray for our nation, as Paul commands us in 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 2, let me read from that. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then he goes on in verse 2, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, at other times, we've unpacked that verse in much more detail Today, I'd like, to, I'd like to ask ourselves, what does it mean to pray for kings? What does it mean for us to remember our heritage? I think when we pray, we need, to, we, need to, we need to stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. We need to remember our heritage. We need to remember where God has brought us from, God has brought us through. I can think of several reasons why we need to, why we need to think of, remember our heritage, why we need to know, why we need to remember what has shaped our nation in the past. First of all, I think we tend to take it for granted. Even if we know our heritage, we don't often take time to thank the Lord for how he has shown himself strong, how he gave birth to our nation, and how he led us through our history. We take it for granted. Another reason that I think we need to remember our heritage is that the loudest voices of our days are working hard to distort and to deny the godly heritage that we have as a nation. They would take it away from us. Another reason to remember our heritage is that we tend to cower under the cultural pressure. We do not confidently assert in conversations that our history is marked by Christian principles and by God's intervention. The crux of the matter comes down to the question, are we a Christian nation or aren't we? I'm not sure we're even bold enough to pose the question, frankly. That's where we are today. That's what we're going to do today. So I want you to consider some examples from our heritage. George Washington spoke in his farewell address as our first president. He said this, all the dispositions and habits, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. I wrote Selah by that in my notes. Stop and think about what George Washington just said. Woe to the man who would undermine the role of religion in our culture, in our society, in our government. 
George Washington, I, would, I look forward to meeting this man. He has, I have a couple more quotes by him. If we can, um, no country upon earth ever had, in its, had it more in its power to attain these blessings than United America. Wondrously strange then, and much to be regretted indeed would it be, were we to neglect the means and to depart from the road which providence has pointed us to so plainly. I cannot believe it will ever come to pass. Uh, okay, are you ready? Uh, how are you doing? Go to the next one. And we saw this in the video a little while ago. To the distinguished character of a patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. Can you believe a president spoke like that? Cannot wait to meet that man. It's in a similar way, John Adams said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. What do you think John Adams' opinion would be for someone who would say, your religion has no place in our government? I'm going to take John Adams' word for it. Adams is also quoted as saying this about the Bible. Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible <coughs> for their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, and industry to justice, kindness, and charity towards his fellow men, and to piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise would this region be. And today we can't stand to have the Ten Commandments posted in any government place. Both Washington and Adams say our system is built for a moral people. When that erodes, our nation erodes. Washington goes further by saying he, he who undermines these pillars of religion and morality dare not call themselves a patriot when they are in fact seeking to destroy the very fabric of our nation. Rutherford B. Hayes, our 19th president, said the following in his, inaug in his inaugural address. He acknowledged that he was looking for the guidance of that divine hand by which the destinies of nations and individuals are shaped. He recognized that God's hand, the hand of providence, had to be on a nation. That he indeed was in charge of the nations. As, as president, he also said this, I am a firm believer in the divine teachings, perfect example and atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I believe also in the Holy Scriptures as the revealed word of God to the world for its enlightenment and its salvation. Did that come out of the White House? James Madison, the father of the Constitution, appointed Richard Story to the Supreme Court. Story said the following about a Supreme Court justice, said this about religion's importance to society in our country. There is not a truth to be gathered from history more certain or more momentous than this, that civil liberty cannot be separated from religious liberty without danger and ultimately without destruction to both. Wherever religious liberty exists, it will first or last bring in and establish political liberty. The idea of religious freedom and the recognition of Christianity as our foundation is woven into our heritage as a nation. So much so that to say we have, be, have been a Christian nation is not a stretch by any imagination. Though it is certainly politically incorrect to say so today, it defies our history to deny it. Consider this. 
in the, in, the, in the case of the People versus Ruggles in, in New York State, it was about a man who was tried and convicted for publicly disparaging the name of Jesus Christ and his mother. For doing so, he was sentenced to three, three months in jail and a $500 fine. Now I would remind you that the year was 1811. I wonder what a $500 fine in 1811 compared to today, in today's money. All for, the, all for the crime of disparaging the name of Jesus Christ and his mother. James Kent, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of New York, said this in an opinion about that case. Whatever strikes at the root of Christianity tends manifestly to the dissolution of civil government. Do, do, what, should I say that again? If you say something bad about Christianity, if you, if you start to chop at the roots of Christianity, your whole government will fall down. I think that's what he's saying. Such offenses, offenses are punishable at common law. The people of this state, New York, in common with the people of this country, profess the general doctrines of Christianity as the rule of their faith and practice, and to scandalize the author of these doctrines is not only impious, but is a gross violation of decency and good order. We are a Christian people. And the morality of the country is deeply engrafted upon Christianity and not upon the doctrines or worship of those other religions. Though the Constitution has discarded religious establishments, it does not forbid judicial cognizance of those offenses against religion and morality which have no reference to any such establishment. The Constitution, Constitutional Declaration never meant to withdraw religion from all consideration and notice of the law. To construe it as breaking down the common law barriers against licentiousness, wanton and impious attacks upon Christianity itself would be an enormous perversion of its meaning. Christianity in its enlarged sense as a religion revealed and taught in the Bible is part and parcel of the law of the land. Judgment affirmed. Did you hear that? In the case of Runkel versus Weinmiller in 1799, Justice Samuel Chase said this, I believe this is in Maryland, if I'm not mistaken. Religion is of general and public concern, and on its support depend, in great measure, the peace and good order of government the safety and happiness of the people. By our form of government, the Christian religion is the established religion, and all sects and denominations of Christians are placed upon the same equal footing and are equally entitled to protection in their religious liberty. It's important to note that he's not saying that the government established Christianity as our religion. He is simply recognizing the fact that life in the U.S. at that time was about Christianity. It was all founded on Christianity. Samuel Chase, who quoted that, who, who is the one who said that, the justice is also one of our founding fathers. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and he became a justice of the United States Supreme Court. So who are you going to believe? The guy on TV who tells you that there's a separation of church and state, or are you going to believe a, a signer of the Constitution the Supreme Court Justice at the time. Who are you going to believe? 
There's lots of quotes and lots of stories to confirm our Christian foundations as a nation. Let's, 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 come, uh, let's come away from those early days and go out to World War II. Let's try one more example. The D-Day invasion of 1944 was underway. Until the radio address of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the American people didn't know about the invasion. It was top secret, of course. During his radio address to the people on the following day, the president not only announced the invasion, but he turned his message that day to the, it, the message to the nation, he turned it into a prayer. He prayed to the nation. And he said this, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. Are you listening? They will need your blessings. Their road will be long and hard, for the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again, and we know that by your grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. These men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all your people. They yearn but for the end of the battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Heavenly Father, and receive them, your heroic servants, into your kingdom. Can you believe a president prayed like this to the nation? And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them, help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. To rededicate ourselves in faith to thee. And he goes on. Many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer. But because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in a continuance of prayer. As we rise to each new day, and again when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking thy help to our efforts. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. Amen. If I understand the story correctly, the whole nation shut down in those days of D-Day. The whole nation was seen to go to prayer over those days as our, as our men fought on those shores. Churches were full of people seeking the Lord on behalf of our soldiers and on behalf of the battle. Who says we're not a Christian nation? There are no shortage of quotes to establish the idea that America was birthed and established upon the foundation of biblical principles. The French author, Alexis de Tocqueville, pardon my French, traveled to learn more about our country, and he said this, the Americans combine the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds that it's impossible to make them conceive the, make them conceive the one without the other. 
And yet the voices of today would draw us away from this heritage. They would attempt to silence the followers of Christ from having a voice in the public square. Faith, the church, and Christianity have no place in public dialogue or policy, according to them. We hear of the separation of church and state and are made to feel as though we cannot bring faith into the equation. But faith, specifically Christian faith, has been an integral part of our history and the blessings our, nations, our nation has enjoyed. In fact, the following, following in the thoughts of Justice Samuel Chase, I'm going to say something that is egregiously politically incorrect and quote him by saying, our, by our form of government, the Christian religion is the established religion of our nation. That's not to say, you see, when we, say, when we talk like this, then our minds and the, the minds of the whole world go, well, you want to set up a theocracy. You want, you want to have a pope here in America. You want to have a government that's led by theologians. No, that's not the case. That's not what our founding fathers intended, and that's not what this, this discussion is about. Rather, we understand that the founders and the people of their days of their day lived by Christian values and faith. It was, it was soaked in. It was inculcated into, every, into the fabric of our culture. From our presidents to our congressmen to our senators, on, on down to the regular person on the street, Christianity was the vocabulary of the day. It was woven into every discussion regarding the formation and the direction of our nation. And I would say unashamedly so. Thomas Jefferson is given credit for creating the separation of church and state and in and, and defining that doctrine. It's not in the Constitution. And we use his example, his, his words, as, uh, as, as a justification for keeping government from doing anything that has to do with religion. But as with so many ideas today, that idea has been terribly distorted. His words have been terribly distorted. In his, in his statement, Jefferson was referring to the establishment of a particular denomination as a state religion. He wasn't talking about Christianity as a whole. He was talking about the free church not becoming the religion of the state, or the Methodists, or the Presbyterians, or the, or the you just fill in the blank. No single denomination should become the church of the state. He in no way intended for Christianity to be rooted out. In fact, as President Jefferson... Uh, Congress made a rule that the, the Capitol building of the United States, the United States Capitol would be used on Sundays as a church. Did you know that? Talk about separation of church and state. And Jefferson went every Sunday to church there. In fact, Jefferson, the president, had the government pay for musicians to be part of the worship service. I think something's wrong in our interpretation of church and state. In fact, Jefferson went even further and he established, he established church services in his own executive branch and, in, and, and at the War Department as well. He wasn't satisfied to have church services only at the Capitol. Somehow I think we've taken his words and misconstrued them, as often happens. In our day, it's difficult to imagine a time when the Bible and, the faith, were, and, and faith were simply a part of everything. It's hard to imagine politicians that looked at the issues of the day through the prism of biblical truths. And that foundation of faith has continued through much, much of our history until the most recent of days. The call to pray for our country 
is a call to remember our rich heritage, our history, and the blessing that God has bestowed upon our nation. I've just given you a few quotes. We haven't even, we haven't even given the quotes of, of the things that are etched in stone on the buildings in Washington. We haven't even gone through the documents, the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution that, that overtly states that these blessings have been given by God, these rights. When we are called to pray for our nation, we are also called to remember our present, to remember what is happening around us, and to put it in context of our history. The, the call to pray for our nation is a call to candidly assess our current situation. And as we look at our history, as we go through even, even our quick tour this morning, we realize that we as a nation have lost our way. We have drifted far from what our founding fathers Indeed, most of our history intended for us. Again, the illustrations from nearly every aspect of contemporary life, well, they're just abundant. We could spend the rest of the day talking about what's wrong with our nation today. But we don't have to look far to realize that we have abandoned faith, that we have abandoned biblical values, and that we have cast God out of most of our institutions in our dialogue. And I want to offer just one example this morning. It's an example that I believe encompasses the condition of our republic today. Our illustration, now this is gonna seem a little bit strange to you, but our illustration actually doesn't come from the United States, it comes from our neighbors to the north, Canada. Canada, if you watch what is happening in Canada, they're a few years down the road from us. If you wanna see where our culture is going, we often say look to Europe, but you can also look to Canada. What's happening in Canada today is probably going to be our story in three years, four years, five years. So listen to this. And the reason I chose this, this illustration is because it has to do with Trinity Western University. If you know about our institutions, Trinity Western University is the Canadian version of Trinity International, the Evangelical Free Church University and Seminary. Trinity Western University is a, is a branch of our seminary. It is free church. In the year 2012, just a few years ago, Trinity University began to, they, they opened up a law school and they began to train lawyers. And, they, and, and as part of, as part of uh, being a student in, at, uh, at Trinity Western, you are required to sign a covenant. Let me see if I can get this covenant correct. The covenant demands classically defined holy Christian living, characterized by humility, self-sacrifice, mercy and justice, and mutual submission for the good of others. Sounds good so far, right? It requires members to abstain from using vulgar language. Are you with us on that one? Seminary students probably shouldn't use vulgar language. I'm Lying or cheating, stealing, using degrading, degrading materials such as pornography and sexual intimacy that violates the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. Is that unreasonable for us to expect our, our seminary students to sign that, our law students to sign that? If you want to come to Trinity Western University, we want you to sign this covenant. Two, two accrediting organizations in Canada. If you want to be a lawyer in Canada, you have to go through these two organizations. They rose up 
and they said that this covenant at Trinity Western University would not make for good lawyers. And so they refused to recognize anyone who's trained at Trinity Western University as a lawyer. You could not practice law in Canada if you came from Trinity Western University. Right? So Trinity filed suit. It, that's been going on for the last six years. And it made it all, all the way to the Supreme Court. And if you, if you watch the news in the, in, in the last few weeks, you know that it made the news that the verdict came down from the Canadian Supreme Court. You know what they said? That the covenant at Trinity Western University tramples on the rights of LGBT people. And therefore, therefore, for the sake of not trampling on the rights of LGBT people, we, have, we, we decide, I'm, I'm really slaughtering this. Essentially, the Christians then Trinity Western University had to give up their covenant and to give up their rights as Christians. Between LGBT and Christians, Christians had to give up their rights. LGBT had to give up nothing. In fact, they went so far as to say in their, in their statement, they went so far as to say that, that not only would it be difficult for an LGBT student to go to Trinity Western University, but it would be harmful to them. That was stated in the, in the response. It would be harmful to them. One of the justices on the Supreme Court later said that it, uh, I, I think it was later, maybe it was part of the judgment, I'm not sure, said that we have to make this decision for the good of our country. Okay, but how, was that a good illustration of where we've come? How far have we come from pres the President Ulysses S. Grant saying it is time for us on the 4th of July on this anniversary to come and give thanks to Almighty God to where we are today with that happening? Maybe the proclamation of another president is more appropriate today. Abraham Lincoln. I look forward to meeting him as well. In his day, he described the Civil War as a divine judgment against America. Can you imagine that? And he said this, we have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. It's critical to remember our heritage. We need to be reminded often of our Christian roots and our Christian foundation. We also need to be reminded in our current culture of politicians that belittle us for clinging to our guns and our religion, that we're not crazy. 
that indeed a call to faith, a call to prayer, and a call to biblical values is consistent with our identity as a nation. When we interject the truths of Scripture and the sovereignty of God into the public square, we do so on the shoulders of the founding fathers and leaders throughout our history. So we've looked at our, our history, we looked at our heritage, we have considered the context of the present. Time doesn't permit me to look into the future. I think if, if for a real complete picture of this, we need to look at the future of America as well. Time doesn't allow for that today. So how do we respond? I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we're really candid with ourselves, oftentimes when, we, when, when we're confronted with this, this dilemma, when we're pushed back in the culture, we respond with anger, sometimes we respond with fear, sometimes we respond with despair. God has not called us to that. God is still Lord. He is still sovereign. God is still leading our nation. And we need to get in with what he's doing. We need to synchronize with what he's doing. Sometimes we respond with activism and involvement in the public square. We need people who will voice their faith, who will speak with reason based on scriptural principles and truth. We need those people to speak into our culture, right? From the guy across the street to the internet, to radio, to television, to our political arena, we need people who speak God's truth into the dialogue of the day. We need people who are willing to engage the culture. And I praise the Lord for those who are willing to step in because it's a nasty business to step into that arena. I praise the Lord for those who have the strength to do it. But listen, listen to this. This is the catch in all of this. Electing the right legislatures who enact the correct laws will not remedy our trajectory alone. Is it a key aspect? Absolutely. But it does not address the moral crisis of the land. Brothers and sisters, we need to be teaching the next generation. We need to teach them the foundations of God's word. We need to lead the next generation into a relationship with Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the gospel. That's our calling. That's our calling. We need to teach the next generation. We also need to proclaim the gospel. We are called to be stewards of the gospel, to be witnesses of the gospel. And then we're called to pray. Let me go back to 1 Timothy where we started. Let me read to you 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But then he goes on, and I didn't read this earlier. He goes on to say, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
Our calling is first to the gospel. Our calling is to represent Christ in the world around us, in the culture around us. And I believe our calling is to pray, is to, is to storm, the th- storm the throne room of God on behalf of our nation. The trajectory that we are on is not good. The future is not bright the way we are going. The only brightness in the future is the power of the gospel. And we are called to be stewards of that, brothers and sisters. And so I'm going to ask us to pray this morning. We're going to take a few moments for a a, a mini concert of prayer. Before we do that, I'd like us to watch a video to prepare our hearts for prayer.